What's up, y'all? Dr. T. Hassan Johnson here. Onyx Report. Shout out to the chat. Shout out to my moderators. What's up, Shot Top? Malika, what's going on? Scott, Brother Truth. What's the word? Uh, man. I'm so livid today. It's ridiculous. I mean, this... You think that you get to a point where you're just completely over this because we've been seeing it longer than most of us have been alive. You know, to be waged war on in the goddamn womb, this should be no surprise, but it's still, uh, it still pisses me off to see. So I'm gonna let some people fold in here. We got about 30 right now. Did you come in? If you're on YouTube, please hit the like button, subscribe, share the video um, before we get into it. All right. Add media. Brother True. Thanks for that support. Uh, Add media. Thank you. Support the show. Um, it's been a busy last few weeks. Right. In the midst of, you know, pandemic and impending, um, you know, shutting down of the quarantine and all the things we have on our plate, um, the police brutality, police homicide doesn't go anywhere. Still very much present. Right. Max Wolia lifting. What's going on? Nah, man, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm livid, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to keep a clear head enough to do this program tonight, but this was not, you know, this kind of shit that I really don't like to do. Um, just because, you know, again, we have to witness the death of yet another black male, um, really over nothing. Um, good looking out, Anwar. Appreciate the support on the cash app. Um, I mean, I think you guys pretty much know, I'm going to cover a couple of different things in the news. And of course we'll get to the two main things. So bear with me as I, um, open up a couple of random, uh, pieces of information. This is something that I, um, I try to do at the onset of every show. You know, I try to point out some news that I think is fairly relevant to the moment. Um, so some of this will be a little random, uh, but I think it's important to, especially to black men. That's principally uh, what I try to do with the Onyx Report. I try to start most of the episodes with some current events that are um, relevant to black men. Right. Sort of news, news for that. Um, you know. Uh, as you can see here, uh, in response to a number of the things we're going to be talking about tonight, um, looking out, brother, truth be told, for the cash app, appreciate the support. Um, we got Gail King in here. Um, looks like she's making up for her Kobe Bryant uh, faux pas and, um, you know, demonstrating some type of public affection. 
Uh, Martel, appreciate the support on the cash app. Um, so she's up here and she's talking about it being open season on black men. And one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit later is how, um, you know, black feminists like this have actually contributed to that, that open season. Um, not necessarily in terms of shooting people, but in terms of creating an atmosphere where the condemnation, the uh, misandry toward black men is welcome. Um, Appreciate that, TD Hip Hop Media. Appreciate the support. Um, so that kind of thing becomes acceptable in the minds of a good number of people, partially because of the types of reporting that we see by people like um, Gail King herself. So she's up here crying about it being open season on black men, uh, yet no substantive acknowledgement of how she has contributed to that. What's going on, Bishop Red Pill? Um, still welcoming people in. Um, yeah, really perfect blackness. I hear you. 79 people watching, please hit the like button, share and subscribe, support the channel. Um, so let me go to the next one here. <clears throat> Some of you may have seen this, um, what is this? America's got talent. This is not necessarily a show I watch, but, uh, I had to acknowledge, uh, gentleman who actually spent 37 years in prison who sang on the show very recently. Uh, this one, this particular article is on people.com. You can go check it out yourself. Um, but the fact that we have to acknowledge things like this, we have to, we have to see these kind of stories. Um, appreciate the support, Nasiana, Wild Arnold. Um, yeah, uh, but we have to see these kind of stories in and of themselves frustrates me because it speaks to, again, the environment where black men are guilty, no matter what they do, no matter if they're in their own homes, if they're walking the street, if they're bird watching, if they're, you know, um, playing as children outside, you know, there's there's really no space where black male innocence is widely entertained. Um, and so in that kind of environment, you don't have to be doing anything. Luckily, DNA evidence freed this man after 37 years of incarceration uh, due to a wrongful conviction. But at the end of the day, you know, um, this is frequent. This is one of the lucky men who was able to get out and was able to have his story broadcast. But that's that's hardly the norm. And we're seeing the Innocence Project doing a great deal to actually liberate a lot of falsely uh, wrongly imprisoned and incarcerated black men. Uh, but it's, uh, it's slow going. And there are, um, you know, millions over the years who've been incarcerated and done time. Um, more than likely for something they didn't actually do. Uh, Darius Harper, Big Poke Dog, appreciate the support. Thank you very much. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to keep my composure. This is another one some of you may have seen. Four white Missouri cops sued for alleged brutality on 68-year-old black woman and her son in a Sam's Club, right? So basically what happened with this one, they bought a large television uh, apparently, the Sam's Club security, they said it was police officers. I've heard alternate stories suggesting that it was actually security guards uh, doubted whether or not they were um, innocent. So apparently they, they got the television to the car with some difficulty. They returned it later because they knew that uh, there was some tension behind you know, assumptions that they may have stole it. So they just thought it would be better to just return it outright. Apparently, uh, they were both tackled in the stores. You can see in the image. Um, 
68-year-old mother, and I want to say the son was uh, in his mid-40s, but I don't want to, I'm not 100% sure I read it, but I don't want to confuse it with another story. Either way, um, brutally taken down, and yet no evidence of any wrongdoing whatsoever. So again, we have this climate of um, uh, the assumption of guilt. Now, much of this did not take place because a 60-year-old Black woman was walking out with a television. It was, it was actually the Black male who was putting it in the uh, vehicle that they had. And from there, the security made the assumption that he was stealing it, right? And a verbal uh, back and forth ensued. And from there, um, the, the mother and son decided to return it. Uh, welcome, Kendra. Good to see you in here. Uh, and so from there, they decided to go about it that way. So again, this climate of guilt. And we're going to be dealing with that tonight. We're going to be dealing with that. Peace on CNN.com. There's one epidemic we may never find a vaccine for. Fear of black men in public spaces. Marvis Brown, appreciate the cash app support. All right, BGS, good to see you. Ian Graves, appreciate the support. Ian is in the chat. Um, so uh, please support the show. Um, this piece deals with the whole question of fear of black men in public spaces. And it's, it's, it's a welcome piece, but of course, a piece like this could have been written any time in the last hundred years and it would still be applicable, right? The fear of black men in general um, is really what is the underlying theme between a lot of what we're seeing tonight, right? A lot of, we're seeing a lot of the same kinds of stories, same kinds of issues really going around this whole question of the fear of black men. Uh, and that fear sometimes spills over onto you know other groups, onto children, onto women. But let's not let's not let's not be deflected. I know it's popular to say that this is just an issue for the black community, but we tend to say that when it comes to black male issues. When it comes to black female issues, we we identify them as black female issues. But when it comes to black male issues, we kind of sweep it over and just make it a black issue overall. No, we need to be very particular, and we need to learn how to be particular when it comes to black men. Because black men themselves, even academics, have been shamed into being silent, shamed into being afraid to say, no, this is anti-black misandry. This is very particular to black men. When you're talking about police officers, when you're talking about vigilantes, you're talking about two to three hundred black men per year. Even the predation of black men on other black men is very particular. It's environmental. It's produced by conditions, it's produced by poverty, but it is, it is yet and still often very particular in terms of who it's directed toward. Now, there's no question that there is spillover. There's no question that people get hurt who are standing on the sidelines, but let's be clear and let's learn how to be very particular about who we're talking to. We are talking to and about black men. And I wanna be clear on that because we're not, we're not allowed to in many instances. We're afraid to, and we don't know how to do it. And that includes black men themselves. Another piece might find interesting from New York Daily News, uh, Brooklyn man sent to a psych ward by cops who insisted he was someone else, lawsuit claims. Uh, appreciate the support, Don Postal. Thank you. Um, so again, not just about anger in and of itself, but also about the assumption of uh, sanity or insanity there is, or uh, th being a threat to the larger public, right? Um, this particular piece was written on May 26th, and um, in it, it says routine police stop of a Brooklyn man turned into uh, a nightmare when cops insisted he wasn't who he said he was, even after he showed ID. 
shipped him off to a psych ward for not knowing his name, new lawsuit claims. Cops pulled Deshaun Gray, 24, at around 10 p.m. April 24th um, in Brownsville with a passenger in the front seat, asked him for ID, um, says the suit that was filed Tuesday in a Brooklyn federal court. Uh, Gray provided state-issued identification, but cops didn't believe him and said he was actually another man named Giovanni Centrin. I guess I might be mispronouncing that. Then warned Gray that lying to police about his identity is a felony. Um, By coincidence, Gray knows Centrin and told officers he was incarcerated, according to the suit, but the cops never bothered to check and instead dragged Gray out of the vehicle and put him in handcuffs, the lawsuit alleges. Uh, Keisha Davis, appreciate the support. Thank you for that. Um, So this is the kind of thing we're talking about. These are the kinds of of stories that I just want you to, to keep an eye on, right? Because they all kind of lend to the same conclusions. We're going to get to this one in a moment. Uh, internal affairs ruled Miami officer was justified to hand uh, to handcuff black doctor until his reasonable suspicion was dispelled. This is a story we talked about a few weeks ago. This is actually a, a, a doctor who was out uh, trying to do work for those um, in terms of, I think he was working with the homeless in regard to COVID-19 And uh, when he was about to leave his home, a police officer drove up and um, assumed that he was suspicious for one reason or another. He was put in cuffs until his ID was confirmed. And now they have just exonerated themselves. Right. So, again, just, uh, you know, being a black doctor is enough. Right. A little bit of uh, positive news. Um, Businessman Frank Baker pays off tuition of Spelman graduates. Um, very reminiscent of another black male who recently did something similar. All right. Over at Morehouse across the street. Um, yet we have another black male doing that here, despite accusations that black men don't care. Um, and a variety of other kinds of erroneous assumptions about black men. And yet here we are. Right. Here we are. Yet another. So look this story up if you get a chance. Sean Smalls, appreciate the support. You know, um, something to check into. Look into Frank Baker and look at what he did over at uh, Spelman. Um, Yeah. This one is not necessarily directed toward black men in particular, but it applies nonetheless. Right. Even though Judge Moreno found that Wright knowingly filed a false report, she was not charged with a crime, representatives for the city and the county attorney's office said. This is a story about an economics law, oh, I'm sorry, a law professor who was falsely accused of rape um, by one Miss Wright. And he apparently argued his case, won, and of course won a $1.2 million defamation case. And yet his accuser is still not suffering from um, any kind of malady in regard to uh, a false charge. That is something that I think when it comes to uh, black masculinism, when it comes to the black, uh, you know, the black, when we're talking about a black male agenda, one of the things we're going to have to start talking about is what are the repercussions for um, falsely charging men of abuse and rape, um, so on and so forth. Uh, These are things that for the most part have uh, gone unchecked, and yet they have a profound impact on men's lives as a whole. 
I mean, for the most part, your, your professional reputation is, is severely damaged in many instances. I've had men reach out to me even in the last few months who've been falsely charged and they weren't in the news and yet and still their, their businesses are completely destroyed. Their reputations are destroyed. Their family and friend relationships are destroyed. One man um, I posted on my Facebook page about a week ago, he actually had an admission from the woman that claimed that he had raped her. She admitted on social media that she made it all up and he posted it, but he also talked about how many friends he lost, how I think he lost his job. All of these kind of things happened simply at her word, no evidence, no checking, no nothing, right? And at the end of the day, even though she came out and publicly acknowledged what she did, um, you know, she suffers from no nothing in terms of uh, what she's done to him. Uh, and at the end of it, he's so beat up by the whole situation, he's just glad it's over. And I more than understand, but at the end of the day, we still have to push for something beyond that, right? 162 watching, again, please like and share as we get in. Um, Hmm. Peace, black to death. Um, let's see. Let's get to the next one here. In a better place, Miami mother uh, of drowned autistic boy admits leading him to canal. Look how they sidestep and tap dance around this. She basically led her autistic son to a canal where he was found dead. Uh, but in her uh, response, when they were looking to find out what happened, she said that she was followed by a light blue car uh, that forced her off the road and there were two black men inside. One of them jumped out. She told Miami-Dade police and demanded drugs. So again, we're talking about the same kind of thing here. We're talking about climate, right? We're talking about the climate around how black men are perceived. And in this instance, you have people that are making up uh, charges that fit the popular stereotype and thus have traction. So she went with this story of eventually they investigated and found out it wasn't true, but this is not new. We've seen these kind of stories for decades where women uh, in particular, uh, white or white-ish women could claim black men did something. And that actually uh, is believed in many circles, right? And here's yet another case of that. Um, I'm going to save this one for a little later. There's a couple of these um, that I'm going to come back to here. This was a case. I don't know if any of you saw this. This was on FX. I believe it's still there if you haven't seen it yet. I'm not sure where else you can find it, but y'all are pretty savvy when it comes to finding things, uh, even if you don't formally have cable. So I put it in your, um, you know, dependable hands that you can find this. This is an interesting case. This is about uh, the real woman behind Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade. It's called AKA Jane Roe. And it deals with, um, you know, the story behind the woman that, you know, became the face of um, abortion, right? The face for the option for women to have uh, access to abortion. And it covers her story in a pretty interesting way. I mean, for the most part, she was a lower working class white woman, came from very poor and abusive background. And that, that, that in, you know, in many instances, um, took advantage of her position when it was useful to, for her to do so. Uh, she had lied about a number of things in terms of, uh, you know, the case behind wanting an abortion. She claimed she was raped, um, but she wasn't. And she admitted to it much later. Um, what I found interesting about this is when the doctor asked her, had she been raped when she came in pregnant as a young woman, she actually said, uh, the doctor actually asked, was it a black man who raped you? That was one of the first questions. And that became, and you know, for many white women, the, the justification for 
getting an abortion is if you were raped, not just raped, but raped by a black man. Uh, so this is an interesting series to take a look at if you get a chance. I think you will find it edifying as far as um, the role feminism played and how they, um, as well as the Christian right, used people for um, symbolism, right? And the extent to which they were willing to do so. Um, anyway, so these were just a couple of things that I thought might be uh, interesting, might be worth your perusal uh, as we wait for people to come in. Um, the biggest issues that I think we're all familiar with center around um, two particular cases, right? It's two particular cases that we all, you know, have heard about. Um, so this is, you know, uh, this is the first one we can talk about, right? Um, even though the brother in this situation was not abused, he was not attacked, and he is thankfully not dead, uh, we do know death by white woman is a thing, and it has been around for several hundred years. And in this instance, this white woman who uh, was being politely checked about having her dog not on a leash decided to go into her acting routine once on the phone and threatened um, you know, to have this black male dealt with because she was incensed by being publicly checked. Uh, Kareem Austin, appreciate the support. Um, so that said, you have, you know, and this is something black men are fairly familiar with, right? Just the threat of, you know, female vulnerability, really the weaponization of femininity against Black men in particular, and not just any femininity, although that is a subject we'll be talking about tonight as well, but particularly white femininity. And this woman was very clear, as most, I would argue, white women are in terms of how they've been socialized, very clear as to the kind of weight, right, that their, their, their whiteness and their femininity together have with one another. Those two things linked together have a powerful uh, draw on white society, especially in regard to law enforcement and the use of that femininity to victimize black men. And this is something we can talk about going back to slavery. This is how, when we talk about heterophobia, when we talk about black men being um, assumed to be a threat, particularly heterosexual black men, one of the dynamics we see even going back to slavery was white women weaponizing their femininity, weaponizing their vulnerability, and using lynch mobs to exact revenge, to exact control, to exact fear out of black men uh, in order to get what they wanted. And in a number of instances, you had white women that demanded sex and would often use the threat of rape to control black men's actions, regardless of what black men may have wanted. In this instance, she wasn't demanding sex. All she was demanding in this, in this instance was um, uh, his, uh, um, his uh, what would you call that? Compliance. Right. Uh, appreciate the support. I think it's 88 DAM. I apologize or DBM. Apologize if I misunderstood that. Appreciate that. Right. So she's she's demanding his compliance is really what we're seeing here. Right. And she's using that. And if you watch the video, it's real interesting. You can see her going from being angry, from walking up in a threatening fashion and, and getting in his face to very quickly turning into you know, a kind of threatened, uh, endangered little girl once she's on the phone. And that performance is so crisp, 
that performance is so well rehearsed. It it switched in a heartbeat. It didn't take any kind of practice. There was no, it, it just, and you could tell that that's, that's not a new dynamic, right? This is something that I think women have been various, very uh, astute at uh, over the generations, uh, particularly white women, because in, in the West, uh, in the Western hemisphere, most particularly, and, and definitely in, in North America, white women have been the standard for femininity and are well aware of what it exactly means to be um, under threat and in need of support, right? They're well aware of that. Uh, Brandon, appreciate the support on the Venmo. Um, and Wild Arnold, appreciate that support. Yeah, yeah, I got to post that statement. Absolutely. Exactly. It's the performance of femininity and the exploitation of it. It's not about real femininity. I agree with you, right? White damselinity. <laughs> I want to remember that one. But definitely, you know, what I the way I frame this is the weaponization of femininity, weaponization of white femininity in particular. And I can tell you from anger to the sounds of fears to tears are extremely powerful weapons in the hands of white women extremely powerful weapons and they have caused the death of many a black man um and this and that's nothing new right uh the biggest case uh that i think most of us are responding to in this instance has to do um with this gentleman here right george floyd right accused of uh, forgery, or at least by the police officer. Obviously, nothing that uh, went through any intense investigation. It wasn't brought to a court of law, anything of that measure. But nonetheless, um, at the accusation, a nonviolent crime, police come to take him in, and um, he is he's this brother has his neck right kneeled upon by a cop by knee for almost nine minutes. And um, he does not survive that. And yet again, we see another black man die on camera, right? Saying that he can't breathe. One thing that I do know is, you know, we've gotten to a point where black men in particular are mobilizing around no longer being subject to hashtags. Now, What's the problem with hashtags? The problem in and of itself is not the, you know, not making people aware of the situation. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Crew royality, appreciate the support. We've been seeing, you know, black people using social media to make people aware. We've been seeing that for quite a while now, right? It was a, it was a novelty when you talk about 1992, um, but, you know, now with smartphones, it's quite common. So there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if anything, the activism around Trayvon Martin um, I mean, the story broke very quickly. It was taken off the air and it was people using social media that demanded that it be, it be brought back. So there, there's definitely, uh, you know, an upside to the use of social media in regard to getting out injustices. Uh, but at the same time, um, about five or six years ago, it became, it became in a very short period of time um, expected that these black men's deaths would become cannon fodder, would become um, you know, currency for organizations to build that used um, black folk as as the cover, but at the end of the day would be very ardently um, uh, void of any black male 
presence would actually fervently state they didn't want black males in positions of leadership. And for the most part, when they laid out the issues that they advocated, issues that pertain to black males weren't entertained by any, to any great degree at all. So we were good enough to be used in our deaths, but not good enough to be heard. And this is the kind of time period that we are, we're standing against at this point. When I say no more hashtags, no more fucking hashtags. What I'm talking about is no more, no more of the of the use of black male death for other people's agendas, especially when there's a demonstrated hatred of black men, particularly heterosexual black men, where they are villainized, right? In much the same way, white society has been villainizing black men since slavery. Almost the same goddamn language. There's no way that we're going to allow that to continue in 2020. Black men are not having it, and they're speaking up about it now. Um, there are many instances when we're not alone in that. Uh, one of the things we're seeing coming out of uh, Minneapolis right now, um, I'm going to see if this video continues to work. Y'all know how these websites are. They want to start showing commercials, even though, even though you've already watched them, but we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, this is what we see happening. All right. Let me see. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are getting that. I apologize. There we go. Can you guys hear it? Okay. I apologize if the volume is low. Um, what little footage I could get uh, just right off of uh, Independent uh, UK. Uh, Armand, appreciate the Cash App. Um, just showing you what's going on there. So we have uh, an uprising. Uh, so far, it looks to be one that's very reminiscent of what I remember happening in 92 in Los Angeles. Um, I was actually in the Bay Area when that took place. And one of the things uh, people don't want to talk about is in 92, they keep saying that you had these uprisings that were just happening in LA, but they actually happened all over the country. Um, and at that time I was 16, 17. Um, and we were actually in, like I was in Sunnyvale and we tried to actually jump in the car and drive down to LA. That was one of the first things that happened and that was, you know, just as it had hit the news about what was going on with uh, the response to police officers getting off from beating Rodney King. And when we got on the freeway to head down to Los Angeles, they actually had the freeways blocked off by army tank, military tanks uh, before we could even get started. Um, but it didn't take long. I'd say by that night, cities across the country were blowing up. Um, I have not found out how widespread this is, but Minneapolis is rightfully um, 
in a, in a, a completely different state right now. Um, and a lot of this, you know, we've seen this in the past. We saw this with the Watts riots. I mean, these things definitely happen. But in an era with smart cameras and an era of, of, of social media, you know, it's it's far more visceral. I mean, when you can actually see somebody die, uh, that wasn't that in and of itself wasn't common when I was coming up. You heard about it. You may have read about it. But to actually watch somebody die was not something you saw a lot of JBA. Um, Appreciate the support. So that said, um, Minneapolis is in an uproar as it should be. Um, I won't lose any sleep if any other cities go up as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, we do have to have a politic around this where we're just not, uh, you know, deaths for other people to use for their own political advancement, but we actually develop uh, a, a variety of responses to this. I want there to be a, a response on a, on a political level uh, where there's actually policy that targets unapologetically black men as far as how they're treated and as far as what can happen to them when they are accused of something. But at the same time, um, there also needs to be a variety of different responses that apply on a variety of levels. Um, I'll leave it at that as far as that. But um, part of what I wanted to get into tonight and talking about the Central Park issue, um, right? Um, Aquatechi, appreciate the support. Uh, the, the Minneapolis um, unnecessary killing of George, George Floyd um, and the kinds of things that, we, that I reported on a little bit earlier. The part of the reason I'm bringing all of these things up is there's a common feature that I think connects all of them. And that is the disposability of black men. Right. It is deeply set in the culture that our lives are up for grabs. It is OK. It is it is more than acceptable if all you have to do is say you were afraid and, and therefore, um, you know, you had to defend yourself by killing a black male or by calling the police and, and fabricating a threat that doesn't exist. All of that is is acceptable far more often than not. Right. The only thing you have to avoid if you're going to falsely accused black men of something is is not getting caught doing so. And that's, of course, what we saw take hap uh, take place with this white woman in Central Park. We saw her fabricate her performance. Right. But this kind of thing happens every day. And it's the kind of thing that many black men are used to even when we shouldn't be. But it goes it's part and partial for how our humanity is perceived. But this is not a problem that is limited to the outside society. This is also a problem within the black community. We are also at a new point um, that we've been aware of for decades, but black men have been reticent to speak about. And that is how we're perceived, not only in the larger society, but within the black family itself. And part of the reason that we have to ask those questions is because a brother wrote me the other day and he said, what exactly is the difference between this woman in Central Park fabricating a threat with black males and my girlfriend doing the same thing. What's the difference? Now, obviously, when I talk about white supremacy, of course, that is the mechanism that this woman, you know, Cooper, well, both she and the black male uh, were last name Cooper, no relation. But um, 
that they, of course, you, it, white supremacy was definitely part of that dynamic. It, it's predicated, her performance is part of a longstanding tradition of advancing white society by reproducing a threat and unifying in each of these instances, the white community in a very particular way. Um, appreciate the support. Uh, I think that's fitness. I didn't see it. Oh, there we go. It's T fitness for you. Appreciate that. Um, so there, there's definitely that. When it comes to, you know, an instance where your intimate other is clearly falsely accusing you of something you didn't do, she's not exactly thinking about the advancement of white society. She's not exactly operating um, uh, in a system where she's been welcome um, to the degree white women are to participate in that. But in terms of the everyday lives of black men, it leads to the same result. You know, you can be killed or in prison. Matter of fact, I, I already the only real difference is, you know, if I guess what, the, what we're using the term Karen these days, if Karen calls the police, they are coming. If your woman calls the police, they may come. Um, but when they arrive, there's really no guarantee of your survival. And so black men are actually asking these questions now. What do we do? You know, for the longest time, we've we've pushed this dynamic of blackness with a, an air of solidarity, political solidarity, cultural solidarity, historical solidarity. And we've overlooked the differences in how both genders have been received by the larger society in an attempt to maintain the solidarity. But there's been a break from that. And black men are not the ones that broke that dynamic. Right. Um, there's actually a video I want to show you a clip of. I'm going to probably show about four or five minutes of it. Um, it's an interview on Tony Brown's journal. Um, I think it's 1994. Um, and it's an interview with um, one Brenda Verner. And she's an advocate for what she identifies as Africana womanism. And she talks about how this particular history is created where you have a break in the solidarity between black men and women, at least post 1970s. Right. She uh, she actually, you know, traces her activism earlier than that. But she saw this transition happen. And, and just in a nutshell, what she's talking about in this interview is how she witnessed the, you know, the, the kind of uh, uh, fracture of the black community, particularly in response to the civil rights movement. Right. And so she identifies how it's the feminist movement that was used to fracture the black community. And she talks about how that kind of took place. Uh, with feminism as a whole. So I'm going to play about four or five minutes of this interview, and then I'll come in and discuss it and tell you where else I'm going with this. Um, now, I, I, I want to make sure you guys can hear this one. So I'm turning it up as loud as possible. I need you guys to let me know if you can hear it as soon as I start it. Um, so I'm going to depend on your quick responses to let me know. Okay, so this is uh, one Brenda Verner. And I want to shout out um, Green Gorilla for sharing this video with me. All right, so let me know if you guys can hear this. Okay, so you guys are saying that it's low audio. I'm trying to see what I can do 
to turn this up. I apologize. I have it up as far as I can see it, and I'm not sure. Uh, here we go. Maybe this is what I need. Um, okay. Tell me if this is any better. And the civil rights movement. Uh, aren't black women conspicuously absent from leadership in the black community and in the black civil rights movement in particular? I think the position, uh, I, I would say that black women were the grease for the machinery. I think um, it was um, when I look at the, the work that has been done, the interviews that have been held uh, about the women, they, they uh, originally wanted black men to be in leadership because they wanted the world to see black men in leadership. But that did not mean they were taking second place to black men. As you know, you've been black all your life. Black women can let black men know how they feel. That's my mother. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting to uh, see that now this whole cult of victimization that's built, uh, been built up around the feminist movement is something that black women have always denied. They've always denied uh, being a victim or the legitimate victim. We've always seen ourselves as sisters in charge of our own lives and our own destiny. And uh, the conflict between feminism and womanism, which was the black response to early feminism. I remember in the 1969, particularly when, um, when uh, the feminists came on campus and asked uh, that we join them, black women's response was womanism. And womanism grew out of the black cultural nationalist movement of the 1960s. Uh, we had womanhood classes in the cultural nationalist movement. Women were very uh, uh, clear about who they were and that their femininity was valuable. Um, I think uh, today what was originally called the women's liberation movement and what is, was later called the women's movement and is now called the feminist movement is what exactly the planners of this, this uh, popular culture event had in mind. Originally, they seduced us with the idea that there, we were all women and that we were going to work together for women's uh, equality, but that we were different, that we came from different cultural backgrounds, that we came from different um, ethnic and racial backgrounds, and that our differences were valued. But now the only thing that's valued is the feminist perspective. You see? No, I don't see. Help me understand that. Well, the feminist perspective says that women are victims and women should be at war with men for power, influence, and high profile, and that they have to assert themselves in a federation against men in order to get what they want, uh, regardless of the hostility that, that it causes. Uh, black women have said that black men and black women have suffered inordinate hostilities and terrorism to, uh, to some degree, and that we cannot uh, wage war, a battle of the sexes against our men in order to gain uh, a foothold or a toehold in in, on the economic ladder in America. But feminists uh, don't feel any reservation to um, uh, set up, a, 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 I consider it a hostile environment. But what we as uh, uh, African-American women have to do, because things have changed over the 25-year history of the feminist movement. Uh, it started off as a women's movement, now it's clearly a feminist movement, and uh, they are the uh, authors of political correctness, and they're even turning our own traditional cultural thought back on us, saying that if we do not uh, hold their views, then we are indeed in incorrect politically. Uh, one of the uh, issues that is um, 
uh, really important nowadays is whether or not black women have the right to indigenous thought. You see, popular cultures tear down cultural uh, divisions. If you are Irish or you're Italian or you are Asian, there are certain cultural mores and ways of th doing things that people have indigenously. The need of the feminist movement is to wipe out these differences so that we can have a one world approach that women around the world will adopt the feminist uh, agenda, which is abortion, the exception, acceptance of homosexuality, the, um, uh, the, uh, Promotion of the idea of, of women in um, battle. Uh, I remember in 1974, uh, um, the, the issue was whether or not we were going to promote the idea of women being in the draft. And my objection was that if um, these same women who declared that these men who run the country were white and racist, uh, they were going to give them the option of, of drafting uh, women, guess who they would draft? So we, the, the, who would they draft? They would draft the, if they were racist and white, as the white women claim, they would they would draft the black women, and these are the. Okay, that's just a bit. It's about twenty five minutes long. It's actually not that long at all. Uh, it's a very short interview, but it's a very interesting one as well, because uh, now, it, again, this is twenty six odd years ago. So obviously there are going to be a lot of differences, you know, uh, that people are going to have now that, you know, um, that are that are pertinent and worthy of discussion. Everything from, you know, her perspective, particular approach to, you know, uh, the draft to ADOS versus Africana. There's going to be a lot of issues. But what I think is interesting about this piece and this interview with uh, uh, Brenda Verner is that she highlights that there was a difference between you know, this feminist group coming in and what she identified as womanist. Now she was talking about, she was saying that the ba the, the, the everyday rank and file black woman did not identify with feminism. They didn't call themselves feminists. They did not, you know, that, that wasn't an agenda that they outlined, they out, outwardly identified with. And she was right. And what she also goes on to say in this piece is that it, it, it was a very particular set of things that influenced how this changed. Um, uh, Jalen, appreciate the support. What she says is, she says it, it's a couple of things. It was college education, and in particular, the women's studies programs that had a very strict, almost religious kind of emphasis on a very particular type of feminism that was alien to the black community in her assessment. And she talks about the way the ways in which black feminists would go back and basically rewrite history and claim a series of uh, black women activists going back to the 19th century that they identified as feminists. And she argued, if you're going to be politically accurate or historically accurate, they were really more like, you know, you, they identified more with a certain type of Christian ethos than they did anything overtly feminist. But she also makes the point where um, when this feminism presented itself, the first thing they tried to do was sell it to women who were active in the civil rights movement. Now, here's another twist. And I think you heard this. She even talked about the leadership in the civil rights movement. I understand black feminists have been making the argument and check out Green Gorilla's channel because he's been doing an examination of the Kumbaya River Collective and their writings. Check him out because he's actually he's dead on. They what she was saying is, you know, they they approached uh, the, the civil rights movement to try and lure black women away. And she said they were they were surprised to find that the women had more power in the civil rights movement than white women had you know, in relation to their men, right? 
But at the same time, these women were actually supporters. They actually supported the idea of having black men in positions of leadership. Now, black feminists would later turn this around and say that black men oppressed black women during the time period from the 60s to the 70s. And these movements kept them out, took away all their power, didn't let them have any agency, oppressed them all together. This would be a talking point that feminists would use all the way up to the advent of Black Lives Matter. So by the time you get to Black Lives Matter, the rationale for why black men can't have positions of leadership was articulated as y'all oppressed us during the civil rights and black power movements, even though the movements from civil rights to even the Black Panthers were predominantly women. You know, you oppressed us and therefore our voices need to be the ones that are heard. So they, so they basically, according to Brenda Verner, they rewrote history and made it such that black men were somehow these boogeymen that attacked them and dominated them and kept them out of power. Brenda Verner is actually saying the exact opposite. She's saying the majority of these organizations were women and they advocated for men in positions of power. It wasn't something that they, they were oppressed into. That was something that they advocated for. Right. And then she goes on to talk about uh, what she calls the cult of feminism. She talks about the ways in which using these university systems, it's principally women that went to college that came back as feminists and the rank and file black women didn't really have a term. They were they, they advocated for the black community and they advocated for women, but they didn't necessarily identify with feminism. But here's the twist. Aside from just the universities being the spawning ground for this type of feminism, this type of black feminism at that, both white and black feminism for that matter, we had the mainstreaming of it that really had the laid the groundwork, right? So from Oprah to Terry McMillan to the films she made from The Color Purple onward, all the way through The Waiting It Exhales and so on and so forth. What they ended up doing is taking these particular feminist ideas and filtering them through popular culture in such a manner that everyday rank and file women were consuming these ideas and may never have actually ever heard of the Kumbaya River Collective may not have ever even read Bell Hooks, may not have read Michelle Wallace in, in The Black Macho. So you had the mainstreaming of a very particular niche branch of black feminists uh, that was very misandrous, right? The perspective in, at the end of the day was that black men were boogeymen, black men were oppressive, right? And this narrative now is almost the norm in many circles. And that became a part of it. And this is why I had my perspective on Gail and, of course, her friend Oprah, because they opened the doorway to that particular brand of feminism. And they made it so influential, so widespread and watered down that people consumed it, accepted it and began to articulate it often without even knowing where it came from. So now, even though there is technically a definition of womanism, when I go to conferences, especially in black studies and Africana studies, I don't hear the differences. Look, 20 years ago, when I would go to an Africana studies conference, I would see womanists who would run feminists out the room. I would see feminists that would argue back and forth with women, womanists. Now I don't see those kind of divisions. They've kind of had this kind of hodgepodging in some circles that's going on. Now, there's some hardcore uh, womanists that'll, that'll check you left and right about it. But at the end of the day, that's not a widespread perspective. I've been teaching womanism for 25 odd years in my classes when I cover gender. I can tell you I have not had to my memory one student who had ever heard of womanism before entering my class. And I've had womanists come in and guest lecture to give the breakdown of what womanism is. Women like Brenda Verner and none of my students had ever heard of it. It's not being taught anymore. 
So she kind of gives us a very interesting breakdown of this history where you have, you know, feminism being introduced by white women in particular who were looking to court black women away from the civil rights movement. And, and then from there, uh, we, she talks about the mainstreaming of it to the point where it's immersed in the culture. Now, this is 1994. So we fast forward 26 years and it's just everywhere. We don't even acknowledge the difference now. Now, black women and black feminism are almost synonymous and it's considered an inherent good. There really is no internal critique of black feminism. It's just accepted, especially if you've sat in these gender studies courses, you've majored in it, and there's no emphasis on men from a, a humane standpoint. Men just become, you know, these kind of objects of oppression that deny women agency. You have to go again. I said this, you know, last week when I did a show um, with um, uh, Tommy Curry, basically you have to go see Tommy Curry in Scotland to actually get a black male studies program. I teach one class a year. That's all I get. So that's why I've kind of gone online. Chief Rocka, appreciate the support. So you know, this is the narrative. And what I'm arguing is that this period not only changed the political landscape of the black community and got us to a point now where black men are asking the question, what's the difference between Becky or Karen calling the police and my girlfriend calling the police? If you check out attorney Dennis Sperling's uh, channel, he did, a, he did a video a couple of days ago where he talked about... Um, women calling the police to win arguments. Now, you know, I would have dismissed that years ago when I was in school, right? But when you've actually had that happen, when you've seen it happen, I appreciate that, Drizzy, appreciate the support. Uh, when you've seen it happen, and it doesn't matter if you're fresh out of prison, looking for a place to live, or you have a, a doctorate or a medical degree, or you're an engineer across class lines, across occupation, across education, you have black men in every level who are giving the same stories. The question has to be asked, well, okay, what does this mean? Where are black men's friends? Where are the supporters that black men have? Yeah, you have people in the streets from time to time when something overt happens, but, um, when you can be falsely accused with no evidence, lose your job, go to jail, even when it comes down to something like child support. I think I talked a couple shows about how lawyers were even suggesting, even pushing women to file charges against the biological fathers of their children to get custody. And that's something that actually happens. Black men are now in a position in 2020 where we're asking questions like, okay, what does blackness mean in 2020? What does the solidarity mean if I have to watch you as closely as if, I, as if I have to watch Karen, what does that mean? And more than that, what has happened with the black family? Now, here's the crux of why I'm on here tonight. Right? If I boiled it down to two things, one thing I would say is I really wanted us to meditate on black disposability, black male disposability, and the extent to which it undergirds each of these situations we're experiencing in the larger society and in our own community. But the other point I wanted to get to is that when we talk about the way the black family has been restructured, as this sister points out, and she gives us the clear analysis as to how it happened, who were the people involved and what it ended up reshaping. What I would argue at this point is that in the black community, even though patriarchy is said to be the biggest issue that black folk are dealing with, that's not actually what's happening, at least not in the way we think about it. We don't have um, a white patriarchy. We don't have a black matriarchy. We don't have an African matriarchy. I'm going to tell you what we have in the black community and, and we've had 
at least since the 1960s and 70s. And there are arguments, if you listen to BGS, that go much further back than that. He can take you back to slavery, uh, and we can talk about E. Franklin Frazier. We can talk about Martin Luther King's statements about it. We can Now, they identified it as a matriarchy, but really what I would argue, what we have right now in the Black community is a female patriarchy. That's what we have right now. We have a female patriarchy. It is not a naturally occurring thing. It did not happen organically. It came about in direct response to policy. It came about in direct response to policies and measures put forth by white society that benefited black women and to a degree that it didn't benefit black men. So black men got a series of barriers put in their way. Black women got a series of passes. Now, mind you, this doesn't mean that you have an, uh, you know, an incredible percentage of black women that are, are you know, making millions of dollars. It's not that quite cut across, although uh, for the most part, you can say black women are more readily employed, more consistently so, at least until we get to the quarantine and the pandemic. And that's a question as to whether or not that's still the case and to what extent. I agree with Yvette Carnell and, and, and Antonio Moore in, in terms of whether or not uh, we've just had our professional base wiped out in the last couple months. I think it is a question that actually is worth asking and exploring. Because I think, what are we up to now? Um, 40 million people who file for unemployment. So we might be actually witnessing the transformation of something that's been decades old. But at the end of the day, what I'm saying to you is we have had a functional female patriarchy in the black community. When you want to talk about the most businesses started, black women, the most um, enrolled in higher education, black women. And we know since the 1970s, higher education has been the, the, the trackway, the doorway to middle-class life. That's not something black males are enjoying to that same degree, right? We've been excluded from that from a number of reasons, right? Because we go back to the mid seventies, we're really talking about the onset of the drug war. And you're talking about a population of black men, especially in urban centers who were very overnight unemployed, right? When, they're, when, they're, when their livelihood went overseas, right? We talk about deindustrialization, the way that impacted black men who didn't see education as a way out. They saw employment. Right. I've talked about this before from my grandfather to my father. They, you know, if they finished high school, they went straight to work. And much of the time in black communities, black households, it was expected that you as a male go to work. So you'd be lucky if you finished sixth grade and it was acceptable that you left to start working to bring money into the household. These are the kinds of things that took place. So that said that, you know, even though education was not our go to, by the time you get to the 70s and deindustrialization takes place, black men have very few options. Right. And then the K through 12 system, as we began to find, is highly misandrous. Right. For the most part, if you're not look, look, if you're not an athlete or an exceptional intellect by their standards, meaning basically a lot of that just meant that you could code switch enough to not scare them in class. Right. If you weren't an athlete or you weren't able to code switch to that degree, for the most part, I would argue you got sent to special ed which was a track outside of anything remotely leading to any kind of educational uplift. Appreciate that Alpha Sigma, right? So that said, we started to see this downward spiral for black men. And it's one that we're not allowed to point out really by and, and linking to black women's access to the middle class because we're supposed to say the entire black community is suffering the same way and it's not. It's a very different experience. And what it ends up leading to is a, a disparity between black men and women to the degree that we, I argue, we live two distinctly different lives two distinctly different qualities of life.
and we don't understand each other. Because at the end of the day, black women make the argument that if I can do it, you can do it. And black men are saying, I got barriers here that you apparently aren't looking at. So we go back to George Floyd. That's not an aberration. That's par for the course. Just like just like during Reconstruction, these kinds of lynchings that took place, they weren't designed for genocide. They were designed to scare the shit out of people from participating, from taking it for granted that they were a part of the system, from assuming that they were citizens. These types of behaviors were designed at that time to prevent you from voting, prevent you from participating. They're still allowed to occur now. What do you think they're designed to prevent us from doing? Most particularly black men. As soon as you think you are actually a part of things, you're reminded your life is forfeit whenever somebody wants it to be. They've weaponized gender in a very adverse way when it comes to black men. And we can't talk about it because we don't want to offend people's sensibility. But according to Brenda Verner and the works that we're looking at, we're seeing that there are particular advancements offered by feminism, right? So you got to ride white women's coattails you were able to live a better life than the average black person. And over several decades, that begins to move forward because now we can talk about the double minority status. Right. We can talk about affirmative action. We can talk about the degrees to which. And, and, and again, Kevin Samuels, shout out to him. He did an excellent show with Minister Jap a couple months ago where he pointed that out in the corporate world. Right. One of the few black men at that level working in a corporate environment. And he talked about how there was virtually no other black men there. When they hired black folk, if at all, they tended to hire black women because they could satisfy two quotas, female and black at the same time. With that dynamic in place, it was another way that black men found themselves excluded. Right? Shout out to Abe. Appreciate the support. Um, shout out to King Sigma. Absolutely. We got to talk about misandry because most people don't know what it is. When I, when I give lectures, when I teach classes, one of the first questions I ask them is, how many of you know what misogyny is? Everybody raises their hand. How many of you know what misandry is? I've yet to have a student raise their hand. Nobody knows what misandry is. I've had feminists with doctorates tell me it's no, it doesn't exist. There's no hatred of men. I'm like, you've seen the legacy of the hatred of black men for decades. You've seen it in your own families. When your fathers and grandfathers went out and you didn't know if they were going to come back, whether it was the Klan or the police, that's a hatred of men because they didn't target you the same way. There's a very specific dynamic going on that we have to point to. So, again, I was going back. I was talking about the different ways that we've seen these advancements take place. And I pointed out if you're going to talk about business, then black women are in the lead in the black community. You're going to talk about employment, black women. You're going to look at the major institutions in the black community that any community references when defining its leadership from uh, religious expression to employment to electoral representation to there's there's really about five to seven categories that uh, I've written about. And I don't have them on my mind. I've named uh, I think half of them, but there are a few more. Forgive me. I can go into more detail later. But um, at the end of the day, in each of those categories, for the most part, black men are not in positions of leadership in our community. Black women are. And the biggest example is the black family. The heads of household. We're up now to almost 80 percent. Right. Black female led. In charge of rearing the family. More often than not, black men find themselves in relationships with women who already have kids, which means that when you try to, you know, in in. 
when you try to um, include your experiences as a man, especially in regard to rearing children, it's her call at the end of the day. It's her family. You're a guest. Even if you're paying the bills, even if you're supporting her children, you let things get difficult enough and watch where the narrative goes. These are my kids, right? That's the dynamic that takes place when you have a majority single parent led family structure that is mainly women. I think, what is it, like 4% men? Something around there? Ridiculously low. So that said, the family structure, which is one of the hallmark measurements of leadership in any community, you don't find black men in positions of leadership. No. We effectively have a female patriarchy in our community. And that said, I take it one step further. Because of the type of indoctrination, socialization, uh, even generational training that many of our women and men have had since childhood, again, going back to Werner's argument, I'll post this on Facebook so you guys can check it out. When you look at the influence that these ideas had on the black families since, especially since the 1960s, the 1970s, and then the mainstreaming of it in media in the 1980s and 90s, you have a dynamic now where the question can be rightfully asked if black men are being asked to play the white woman to black women's white men. That's where we are. I don't know how many brothers that reach out to me are unemployed or, you know, being paid very little. And for the most part, they're trying to contribute in a relationship and she makes much more. That's not just about income, right? It's about how the family and the household is put together. And I'm talking to black men who have to ask for an allowance to go hang out because they can't find employment. And this is something that we know about in over 30, was it? Where 30 major cities, black men are unemployed up to 40 to 50 percent. This is a dynamic that's really going on in in black relationships right now. We actually have a new kind of patriarchy, which I call the gynarchy, right? The black gynarchy. The reason I frame it as a black patriarchy is that the advancements that position our women into into a position of leadership, into a position of authority in the black community is not one that occurred organically. It didn't occur naturally. It actually occurred based on the allotments extended by the white community. So, again, if we talk about employment, if we talk about education, if we talk about resources, if we talk about anything from nonprofit grants to corporate jobs, these are all things that are extended by white society. This is what holds up the current gynarchy. And if those things are removed, it falls apart overnight. This is how you know it's not naturally occurring because it wouldn't need to rely on any outside structure to naturally occur. This is an advent of white society. It is an arm of white supremacy. And this is why black men, especially on YouTube, are having discussions about what relationships. It's not just about, see, can people just dismiss it as, well, you, you know, you, you hate women or you're bashing women or you're, you're, you're misogynist. It's not about none of that. If you're going to talk about what, this Cooper woman did in Central Park, if you're going to talk about um, these white cops that are killing black men, are you going to talk about these skinhead vigilantes who are going out here looking to take advantage of the COVID virus and and using that as a rationale to justify, you know, finding new ways to, you know, kill off black people? Those are extensions. Those are arms of white supremacy. Well, 
we're at a point where over the last 60 years, the black family has been made an arm of white supremacy in terms of this fabricated black female patriarchy. It's not an arbitrary argument about just, you know, not liking your girlfriend. It's not what it is. We're talking about a structural issue, right? So, so look, let's, if we talk about intimate partner violence, right? What are the policies that have put, been put in place since the 1960s that presuppose female innocence when it comes to domestic violence? And how has that trickled down into the black community? Well, basically what it means is that if I'm sitting here with my girl and I call the police and say she's a threat, Who's more readily going to be believed if she calls and says, I'm a threat? Who's more readily going to be believed, right? That is a policy influence that has shaped culture. It has shaped behavior. It has shaped worldview to the degree that even though police officers are trained to look at men and women as a potential threat in those situations, let's be real. For the most part, he's going to be considered the threat. And if you don't understand why, you definitely need to go read Tommy Curry's The Man Not, where he talks about the Duluth model, right? And the inclusion of this model that presupposes female innocence in all occasions. Even if a man is abused, the primary assumption is that there's a man somewhere that is guilty, right? And you see this every day. Whenever you see a news report of a teacher, a female teacher that rapes a student or a girlfriend that beats up on her boyfriend, the first question people ask is, what man in her past damaged her, right? But when it's male abuse, it's a different question. It's an assumption that whatever he did, it was justified. And it justified to the extent that um, we don't need to examine what kind of trauma he may have experienced in his lifetime. This is just what it is. He did it. And therefore, it needs to be dealt with in terms of that. His guilt is presupposed. Right. So there's there's a post. My boy Tommy posted on Facebook about a week ago. And in it, he listed a number of different ways, at least 12, right, where we see these um, dynamics play out. So he talked about black males historically being thought to have lower IQs than black females, black boys receiving less attention and encouragement in school because they are thought to be less intelligent. Now that actually, I've shouted this out um, before, and you may have saw a glimpse of it. I want you to take a look at it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, of course, once this video goes up, you can, um, you know, pause the video and you can look more exclusively at this. All right. This is a particular paper by Dana Wood, Beth Kurtz, Costas, Ndidi Okeke, Adianju, and Stephanie Rowley. I may have, may have mispronounced a number of names. Um, forgive me. Uh, this is a paper written in 2009. It's called Mother's Academic Gender Stereotypes and Education-Related Beliefs About Sons and Daughters in African-American Families. Look at the red bold type in the abstract of what this paper is about, right? Consistent with hypotheses, mothers held less favorable expectations for sons and perceived sons to be less academic, academically competent than daughters. In addition, mothers reported stereotypes favoring girls over boys in academic domains. Stereotype endorsement, in turn, was related to mothers' educational expectations for and beliefs about the academic competence of their own children, even with youth's actual achievement control. Right? 
So we're not really going to look at the extent to which black boys have been systematically excluded from participating in the academic uh, 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 system to the degree that girls do. And there's research data to suggest um, that, you know, on, on how gendered education is. But that's a conversation for another day. But at least to this extent, we can see the ways mothers and the amount of faith they have in their sons versus their daughters in regard to academic achievement plays into their performance in school. Right. We can see the impact that that has. And much of the time that leaves black men on the outs, black boys on the outs. And yet. How much do people care? Um, number three on Tommy's list have the lowest life expectancy. Right. Look that up if you haven't had a chance. The numbers have changed a little bit in the last 10 years, but the dynamic hasn't. The paradigm hasn't. Black men, when it comes to white, Latino um, Asian and black families, or I should say men and women, not families. Uh, we find black men still tend to have the lowest life expectancy. I haven't seen the native Americans. It's usually, um, between black men and native American men where you see us at the lowest levels in society. And I don't know what the case is for, for, uh, for, uh, native American men in terms of life expectancy. I would not be surprised at all if it rivals black men or in different instances exceeds it. That tends to be what happens. But for the most part, black men tend to have the lowest life expectancy. He goes on to say, have the highest rates of incarceration of any race, sex, population across all age groupings. Have the most profound downward mobility of any group in America. Now, this was related to an article that I believe came out, yeah, in 2019, that was talking about, um, you know, wealthy to well-to-do middle-class families. And they talked about black males actually being the group that descends the, the most readily on, a mo on the most consistent basis out of these stable family and, and economic brackets, right? So that's what he means by downward mobility, right? Suffer the highest rates of unemployment and job discrimination of every group are preferred less to their female counterpart because stereotypes about um, fear and deviance mean employees penalize them for not having soft skills. Are the most underrepresented in colleges and universities as students and, and professors. Now understand this, right? Whether you're talking about uh, staff, faculty, or students on most college campuses, except for something like Morehouse, right? You're looking at black men in the least numbers. And I've said this before, and I'm going to keep saying it because it's true. I teach in the Cal State system in California. I have tried to support measures and programs that target black males. They're not readily supported, not on a regular basis. And, and, and to the extent that they are on a widespread basis is questionable. But right now, in their first year, 70% of black males drop out of college at the Cal State system. 70% in their first year. Nobody's saying a goddamn thing about it. I had to go to a special conference for black males that where they pointed it out, they quickly put it on the board, removed it. I haven't heard anybody talk about it since. I literally took a picture of it and put it on social media because I knew I wasn't going to hear it from anywhere else. I have not heard it talked about by anyone else since. Right. And again, we've already talked about the 70 percent of black males in California who in K through 12 are illiterate. But again, haven't heard about that outside of the news article that I saw it in. Right. Um, are the largest victims of homicide, police killings and hate crimes experience the most virulent forms of discrimination as reported by white attitudes and their own encounters in a 30 day period. Have the earliest sexual debut, accounts of statutory rape, and report the highest rates of contact sexual violence and made-to-penetrate violence in the United States. 
Look that up if you haven't heard of it. Contact sexual violence and made to penetrate violence. I might be doing a piece soon in the next um, two or three days on uh, sexuality in black men that speaks to some of this. But in case I don't get to that right away, you can look up those concepts, right? Report the highest rates of IPV, intimate partner violence, victimization, compared to most women and all groups of men in the United States and still be claimed to have privilege, so much so that liberal arts disciplines refuse to engage, encourage, or hire any black males that dare to study these inequalities. I was just talking to a collective of black men last night in education, and they were talking about the barriers that they face trying to set up programs for black boys in schools, right? Two things happen on a regular basis to the black men. And I've talked to black men around the country that have experienced this in education, especially, you know, K through 12, most particularly. First thing that tends to happen is that there are very few black men that they seem to be able to find who are certified to be in those spaces, who have the educational background. And that goes back to high school graduation because it wasn't long ago in the last five, five to six years, it was only one out of two of us graduating high school, right? So hard to find black men that were certified, so to speak. Well, actually three things. So that's the first thing. Second thing is once you had black males in those spaces, they were more often than not treated like um, security guards. So they would be teachers alongside everybody else, but the school would funnel in the worst behaving kids specifically into their classes. And then people would be surprised that they would burn out in a couple of years. But here's the thing. They weren't just burning out because the kids were particularly difficult. They were burning out for the third reason. Third reason is once they saw what the problems were in those given schools and tried to develop programs to specifically address black boys, the first source of resistance they received was not from the higher level white administrators. It was from the mid-level black women administrators. That was the biggest problem that these black men reported. That's what led to their burnout. When they sought support, that's the wall they hit. And the argument was that they themselves could not be autonomous in setting up these programs. Not autonomous in terms of it being completely separate from the school system, but autonomous to the degree that they could actually create the program on terms that they thought would be successful as black men who had sat in those chairs that the black boys they were dealing with had sat in. They were barred from being able to do so. And that's what led to the burnout. So these are the kinds of things that black boys are experiencing. Right. And it goes back to what I was saying before. It's not just in the larger society that we ex we experience the misandry, the disposability and the exclusion from participation. We also experience it in our own community because we have a gynarchy that is not that is propped up by white society and participates in the exclusion and underdevelopment of black men starting from boyhood into adulthood. How do you fight a white society, an alien society that you've grown up in, but you're still treated as a second class citizen, if that? How do you fight that if you are raised into underdevelopment by the very people who you think are there to support you? And if you call out any of these things, you're immediately considered a misogynist, you're considered anti-black, and there's a whole list of name calling, shaming gestures that take place from there. But that's the reason I'm talking about this tonight, because when you couple those two things together, the larger society and the community, what you end up having is a cauldron that underdevelops black males more than any other group inside and outside of the community. And you can only talk about it to the extent that it applies to racism in the larger society. But it's happening on both fronts. 
And you damn sure can't fight it if you can't at least talk about it, let alone make sense of it or how it happened. Right. Those are the issues that we face. There's a film, a very old documentary that many people in Africana studies play on a regular basis. It's called Ethnic Notions, filmed by Marlon Riggs. Marlon Riggs is uh, an academic, uh, um, brilliant cat. Um, this particular documentary is covering the legacy of the stereotypes that were imposed on black people, really post-slavery for the most part. Um, you know, gay activists, you know, Marlon Riggs does some pivotal pieces. And this piece, Ethnic Notions, when he talks about the various stereotypes, he talks about the Uncle Tom, he talks about the Sambo, he talks about, you know, a number of those figures, those characters, um, Piccaninnies, you name it. I mean, for the most part, when people want to show a film on, on stereotypes in Africana studies, I, I would argue they, they still use Marlon Riggs, even though this is like 1987, maybe. It's an old piece. See if you can find it. I don't know if it's on YouTube. But when he gets to the Mammy character, he says something very interesting. He says that the Mammy is a double-edged sword, and that's my paraphrasing. He doesn't use that term. But what he says about the Mammy is, in the white household, the way she's conceptualized, she serves the white family, most particularly white men. In the black community, she is actually the head, right? And he says that the mammy was used to present the black community as inherently backward against this natural Western patriarchy. Here's the problem. In terms of the kinds of policies put forth and the shaping of social attitudes and worldview, the material, you know, the influence of policies that shape our material reality, this in many ways actually occurred. And again, can be argued to have even occurred on plantations, right? Her proximity to white males guaranteed a support structure that black men just didn't have because we were we were perceived more as threat as a threat. We were the direct opposition to white males. Again, go check Jim Sedanius's work, social dominance theory, right? And so what you end up seeing happening is even in mythology, even in stereotype, the dynamic becomes the reality. So now you can go look at the, you can look at the lives of celebrities. You know, you can, you know, if you read Prince's book, he even talks about this happening with his mother. There's this, this whole period where you began to see this really this push for this head of household dynamic that for the most part did not include men. Right. So a couple of things there that I, I wanted to put on the table and I wanted us to really think about because Black men are thinking about it anyway, whether you like it or not. And for the most part, I applaud that black men are. Because as long as our deaths are just cannon fodder for other groups, it's not enough for me. And I don't think it's enough for many black men who are tired of it. Nasiliana, I appreciate the support. Uh, Chris J, I appreciate the support. I'm sorry, it seems like my chat froze up. Uh, Omni America, appreciate the support. Um, Joe from DC, thanks for that. Michael Lewis, appreciate that. All right. I had to check to see if my my system had froze up. If my chat had froze up altogether, I didn't see any of those. I apologize if I um, overlooked you. Um, Generous support from Goshen. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, $100 super chat. Thank you. So 
one of the questions a boy of mine asked me today when I was kind of telling him, he asked me what I was going to talk about. And I told him I was really going to kind of examine the, this black family structure and the way it relates to the larger white society and both contribute to the underdevelopment of black men. And I was telling him about the mammy. He asked me a very interesting question because we started out talking about the Uncle Tom. Right. And in talking about the Uncle Tom, I pointed out that, of course, the, in the conventional narrative, the Uncle Tom is is considered the traitor. Right. He's a traitor to the black community. Excuse me. He's a traitor to the black community and so on. And he said, well, that's interesting. He said, what is the archetypal black female counterpart to the Uncle Tom? And I said, well, you know, there was an Aunt Jane. But for the most part, I would say it was probably the mammy. He said, no, no, no. But what was the counterpart to the Uncle Tom in terms of being a traitor to the community? And I had to think about that because in stereotype, I couldn't think of any black female character that was explicitly defined as a traitor. And so as we began to talk about that more and more, um, we talked about the reverence that people have for the mother, the black mother in particular. We talked about the degree to which you're not supposed to critique her or women in general, uh, which is interesting because, again, the the Werner um, in her interview on Tony Brown, she actually talks about goddess worship. And she talks about the way feminists introduce a very particular type of goddess worship into black feminist spaces. And that, I would argue, has led to some of the dynamics that I've heard about in the last few months. I have brothers who have reached out to me or telling me stories about dating women who consider themselves goddesses who are looking for black men to worship them. They have participated in redefining everything from monogamy to polygamy, right? And I've even, I've even had this experience. I had a, a number of years ago, a couple of women approached me on this goddess tip and they were uh, looking for polygamy, but it was interesting the way they shifted the definition. Polygamy for them was, um, hold on, I don't want to overlook that. Jerome, appreciate that support. Polygamy for them was more than one, you know, it was two to three black women will get together and decide that they will share a man. And they will approach him, and this is how they approach me. And they said, okay, the way this will work, we agree to give you access to our bodies. You will financially take care of us. This, 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 this was the black goddess redefinition of polygamy. When it comes to monogamy, the way this kind of black goddess narrative worked was something you probably all heard before, right? Your money is our money. My money is my money. It's centered around the worship of the feminine, right? And they articulate that they, as the representation of the feminine or the goddess, require worship. But it's interesting to listen to Werner describe this as something alien to the community, a very particular form of Black feminism. Brenda Werner, she talks about goddess worship being introduced by feminism. She said prior to that, you had women that saw themselves as part of a community structure, right? But she said she talks about the explicit, particularly in college education, college and women's studies programs, the introduce, introduction of this goddess. And she talks about it particularly as Sophia, you know, coming out of the Greek tradition. We've since seen that kind of transitioned into various African structures, whether you're talking about Osset or whether you're talking about some of the Yoruba, you know, um, you know, deities. But it's still the same basic core. 
It's about female worship. And on an esoteric level, it makes no sense. Because when you talk about the masculine and feminine, these are qualities within everybody. But they 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 translated in a very particular way that puts them on a particular pedestal. So I've I've had these you know, approaches, and brothers have been telling me lately that this is something they've been seeing more and more of. But I digress. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out when my boy raised the question of who are typically speaking represents the traitorous element in stereotype. There's only a male figure. We do not have, and this is what that means. There is no vocabulary. In, pop, in our popular imagination, in the Black community, for a female figure that is traitorous to the community, that, again, is limited to men. Now, that doesn't have to stop there, but I think it's interesting in and of itself to see how limited, right, these perceptions are, right? So anyway, um, just wanted to get that out there. Um when we talk about these issues, whether you like it or not, for black men, they're just not limited to what white folks are doing. They are uniquely connected to what black men are experiencing. And black men are experiencing experiencing it to different degrees in their community as well as outside of it. So, yes, you may get unjustly killed by a cop for walking down the street. Right. You might be unjustly, um, you know, sent to prison for something you didn't do, as Dennis Sperling points out just so she can win an argument. And, and as laughable or dismissible as you want, might want to make that, I've experienced it. I've had the threat of having the police called and a story fabricated simply because I wasn't doing something she wanted me to do. When you've experienced that, and then you've talked to too many Black men who have experienced it, where you have the police, the very same instruments of quote unquote justice that we're talking about with George Floyd, when those same instruments are used against you arbitrarily because she can, how then do you really begin to assess what blackness means in 2020? Because here's the thing I'm noticing, no matter what solution or ideology I'm hearing out there, they all sidestep these gender issues. And I understand why they're seen as dismiss as, as, as divisive. But as Brenda Verner points out, they've been coming for a long time and they were very purposeful. Right. We can talk about the ways in which the CIA have been involved in using feminism, you know, to disrupt black activity, black activism. But we're at a point 30 years later where it is deeply set it's now any solution you have for black uplift that does not take into account how misandry has worked institutionally and yet silently. If you don't address that dynamic, no solution is really going to work. They're going to continue to blow up and fail. Because if our solidarity only works to the extent that we have to be quiet about how we're treated. It's not going to be any real investment. It really isn't. So, yeah, for black, for many black men, these discussions now have to take place inside and outside the community. We're talking about a very particular type of anti-black misandry or a very particular type of racial sexism that takes place in larger society and in the home and in the community. It happens to our boys all the way up to our elder men. Appreciate that, Andy. Appreciate the support, Solis. Um, I've held you guys pretty long. I am planned. 
to go this long, but um, I'm trying to keep from punching the walls again, you know, reading these goddamn reports. I just had the wall in my bathroom fixed not long ago from reading one um, last year. I'm trying not to do that again. Anyway, that said, I hope that, uh, you know, if nothing else, brothers, you reach out and you have support, uh, especially from other brothers. I hope that we can get to the point where we do that because um, in too many instances, I don't see where the support is coming for from black, from for black men. Right. Um, Y'all know how I like to close. And this, you know, even though I read it every show, think about it in relation to what we're talking about, because these are things that black men are experiencing, again, outside the community and within it. Right. I'm here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace, brothers.